This week's Cloudcast is brought to you by Momentum SI. Whether you want to migrate applications to the cloud, transform to enable DevOps, gain insight from big data, or accelerate your agile development, Momentum SI's strategy, consulting, and hands-on expertise can help you get there faster and with greater success. Check them out at MomentumSI.com. And now, on to the show. Cloudcast Media presents... From the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to yet another episode of the Cloudcast. Uh, back here in Raleigh in the massive Cloudcast studios, and you know. Aaron and I were talking at OpenStack Summit, and we sort of decided, you know, we've we've kind of beaten the infrastructure horse to death. Um, the feedback we've gotten from a lot of people about uh, sort of large-scale operations, DevOps, kind of the next generation of things, and, and to some extent for anybody living in the web-scale space, the, the current generation things is probably where we ought to focus the show. So we're going to change some of the format up a little bit in terms of guests and topics and stuff. And... Today, we're very, very uh, lucky and very excited. Sometimes, um, you know, we go to events and, and people will reach out to us as opposed to us being curious. And, and the good folks at Guilt, uh, Guilt.com, which a lot of you guys will know, uh, reached out to us and said, uh, we do a lot of very, very cool stuff that people might not see behind the scenes. Uh, we'd love to kind of get to know you guys and talk to your guests. So today, we're, we're very lucky. Uh, Eric Bowman, VP of Architecture, sort of the guy behind the scenes designing a lot of this stuff is with us today. Eric, welcome aboard. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, you know, by way of background, you know, you, you, you kind of look a little bit. You're yet another Reed College person. So there's sort of you, Steve Jobs, uh, Luke Keynes from Puppet Labs. Like, what's what's in the water at Reed College that, that <laughs> all these, you know, very, very smart folks that are changing the changing the, the, the industry, changing the Internet goes on out there? Like, what's what's the thing about Reed College that we're seeing so many creative people come out of? Yeah, well, one thing about Reed is that it doesn't have a computer science department, um, and it really focuses on a very core curriculum. Um, everything is kind of a Bachelor of Arts, so everybody gets a really well-rounded uh, kind of core curriculum-based education. Um, but at the same time, it's it's really technical on the science and math front, um, and it's really hard. Um, and and so it, it really gives people a very broad but also very deep education. Okay. Um, it's also supported uh, computing in a lot of kind of non-traditional ways. When I was there, there was a what we called the D Lab, which was a kind of a development lab where the school would actually pay students to learn how to program um, to kind of support the curriculum. And uh, I did that for years, and that, that's pretty amazing. A slightly longer path, perhaps, than. Uh, than actually studying computer science, but uh, actually really fulfilling for me and a lot of people there. Yeah, and it sounds like much more much more hands-on. You sort of own what you're building or what you're thinking about. So very, very cool. Um, so, you know, I, I would say most people know about guilt from the front end, what they see on the web, the, the you know, the this kind of very dynamic website. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys, like how people classify it as it's, it's an auction site, it's a retailer, it's a you know, tons of, of sort of dynamic recommendations and stuff. Um, but on the back end, I'm a little bit, I gotta be a little bit fascinated because to a certain extent you guys have, have got to have a ton of sort of machine learning and real time knowledge. You've got to have a ton of probably complicated logistics and supply chain to, to deal with all the suppliers that you have. Like 
what's what goes on behind the scenes of guilt? What 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 are the complex kind of problems you have, and what does what's the environment look like as a whole? Right. So yeah, guilt is a flash sale site. Um, this is sort of a form of e-commerce where we launch a bunch of sales at the same time every day, and as a result, we get a pretty big traffic spike every day at noon Eastern time. And that's uh, that presents one set of challenges. We get this kind of stampede effect um, that really affects everything that has to touch the front end. And you know, there've been a number of kind of lessons over the years about how to deal with that. Uh, on the back end, we uh, all, you know originally at our peril, and now we think kind of to our advantage, have built our own ERP. Um, and so we handle all of our own logistics. There's a ton of work setting up sales, all of the customer support. Everything is kind of connected to the same system. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of synergy that we get, although it's certainly it's a huge code base at this point and a really complicated system. Right. And in terms of, so, I mean, like you, you talk about ERP and typically the words ERP and, and web scale don't always necessarily go together. People tend to think like big SAP system versus, you know, what goes on in the web. Like the thing I always try and get across to folks is, like, how many moving parts are there? Just you know, walk us through from I get an email at noon that says, hey, here's the X number of sales going on to what has to happen to fulfill that, to, to make sure that there's inventory, to all the things that go on. Like, how, how many systems are typically involved with something like that? Well, you know, literally hundreds at this point. Um, you know, originally, the application was, a, was kind of a single monolithic Ruby app. Um, and that turned out to be kind of impossible to scale on the front end, but a lot of that still lives in the back end. Um, so we have a Postgres database that is, uh, I think it's fair to say, rich. Um, we have hundreds of people uh, who work talking to vendors, preparing products for sale. We do all of our own photography, write all the all the copy. Like there's a huge amount of work to put together a sale, and and we put around thirty to fifty sales live every day, whereas a lot of other e-commerce sites might do a dozen or or so sales a year. Um, so that kind of that interconnectedness is both a, a, a blessing and a curse in some ways. Um, like years ago I was, when I was working uh, at Maxis and, and people would look at the SimCity code base, um, it was always like, you know, it's like every single part of this knows about every other part. And, and kind of the wisdom was like, that's actually what makes it great. But it also makes it hard to maintain. Um, right. So this thing, you know, over time kind of grew monolithically and was really well integrated. And as we scaled, it became really quite challenging to figure out how to break it apart into, in, into you know, essentially a service-oriented architecture that was actually maintainable and that people could move in parallel. Um, so on the front end, we're really quite modern. Most of our front end is implemented using Play Framework and Scala. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, you know, the... The secret to being able to handle the noon stampede is is essentially to never hit disk if if possible. So everything is in RAM. So there's a lot of caching that goes on, and caching is hard. Um, and we have a really complicated sale model. You know, over time we've had to support lots of different things, including things like wine and cars. So the model has grown over time to accommodate these different kind of unique things. Um, and then on the back end, connecting that to actual inventory is also really challenging. You know, one of the things that's very hard about the system is how to manage inventory when people are competing really, really uh, fast to get something desirable. Our fastest checkout, I think, was 0.2 seconds uh, sold a Volkswagen. And to be able to manage that at scale and to not sell that Volkswagen twice and all that stuff is, is pretty hard and a lot, and there's a lot of technical challenges around that. 
Yeah, no, I can imagine. So from an architecture perspective, so like you said, it, it originally was, and this is oversimplifying, but like one giant application, one giant Ruby app or, you know, sort of monolithic, if you will, and, and you've broken it apart. Like what's the, what's the evolution of that look like? So as an architect, at what point do you go, this is unmanageable, it's not scale? I mean, not scalable is probably, hey, customers are complaining, but like at what point do you start saying, I've got to start breaking this apart, and then what are you thinking in terms of once I break it apart, how do I figure out how big to scale it, what sort of decisions and trade-offs do you make? Yeah, so the, I think the original break-apart decision uh, came, we, we had a, a Christian Louboutin shoe sale uh, I think in 2009, it was actually before I started, and it absolutely crushed the site. It's a very, very desirable women's shoe brand, yeah. and it was actually down for hours. And, and that, there was kind of a, a call to action to, to figure out a new path. And basically, it, when they did the math to figure out what it would take to scale rails to be able to handle that kind of traffic, it was incredibly expensive. Um, so kind of the first kind of burn it down and start over again was to break it up into about a dozen uh, Java services to handle kind of really big core things like product and order, user. Um, and it was written using really low-tech Java, JSPs, JDBC, um, a lot of hash maps that would go from the database uh, into JSON. And it was really, really fast. Um, when I first saw that code, I, I'd, I'd never really seen code like it before, um, but it was just it was just unbelievably efficient in terms of performance. But over time, in particular, increasingly hard to maintain. Yeah. Um, so I think, like a lot of people, uh, you know, there's a learning process in, in trying to understand what's the right unit of service. Um, we've gone pretty far toward building quite small microservices. Um, we've been using kind of a bespoke service framework uh, for a while that's kind of based on JAX-RS and, and kind of a lot of standard Java stuff. And then more recently, we've switched to play, and we've invested a lot in making it easy to create a small service and get it really quickly to production. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I think everybody feels like it's possible to go too far in that direction. I don't think we're there yet, but we're you know we're starting to think about you know how, are are we on a path to making things too granular? Yeah. We have a lot more services than we have uh, developers, um, and so you know right now we're looking at what's the long term view of that and how do we start to clump some things back together probably to make some deployments simpler. Although you know everything is a trade off, and right. I don't think I don't think anybody really knows where this stuff is going to go yet. Right, right. Now, I know, you know, when I when I attend conferences and I hear people talk, I mean, you, you, you do hear more and more about kind of different people in different communities that sort of solve similar problems. Yeah. Now, obviously, finding talent is, is always tricky. And, and anytime people are writing code and then potentially they leave and it's trying to figure out what they wrote, like, how much do you guys try and, I don't want to say standards, but like, are there guilt standards that you guys try and follow so that a you can find talent that sort of knows common stuff or, or common tools or frameworks, and then do you, do you kind of try and follow that so that if somebody leaves or something you know, you're trying to think about, okay, how do we interact with that? It, it, it is somewhat consistent, or is that still just evolving so fast? You're trying to figure it out as you go. Yeah. So yeah, that that's a hard problem to solve. 
for the most part, we are pretty consistent. Um, at the same time, our culture really encourages autonomy and uh, kind of trust our employees to make the right decisions. We, we make certain paths easier than other paths. Yeah. Um, like it's easier to bring a Scala application into production than it is to bring a Node application into production at the moment, although that's something that we're currently kind of opening up toward being uh, even more kind of trusting uh, in our team autonomy. Um, introducing Scala is one of these things where people really worry about how are you, you know, can you get people to maintain this? Um, other places I've worked, you know, the big worry was, was can we get uh, teams in India that can maintain this for cheaper? And it's always a risk. Um, I think one of the things, you know, as we went from what sort of became ultimately very monolithic Java services to a much more fine-grained service architecture is that the individual services themselves get a lot simpler and smaller. And so the risk around things like technology choices is a lot less because they tend not to turn into these incredibly big, complicated apps. Yeah. Um, we also really encourage people you know, to focus on writing code that is meant to be written. Um, we use a tool called Garrett, which... Uh, comes from the Android team at Google, which is a, like a code review workflow that's built on top of Git. And we really try and do a lot of code review, both like to get a common standard uh, for code within Gilt and also as a way to kind of teach people. Um, a lot of the people we hire, I guess fewer all the time, but still a fair number haven't done Scala yet. Mm-hmm. So they come to Gilt um, excited to learn Scala. And, and so one of the things that we kind of focus on is how to teach people Scala in a way that's relatively consistent. Um, I think the other thing is that what, what we found is that most systems tend to get rewritten every few years anyhow. Um, and so, you know, we, there, are, there are still a few legacy systems at Guild that are a little bit hard to maintain, but more and more we tend to rewrite rather than have to maintain. And one of the great things about Scala is that just simply our systems have fewer bugs and there's less maintenance overall. Yeah, so... When I was talking to Lori, who's your one of your sort of technology evangelists, um, you know, one of the things that's always very interesting to me is how things have sort of evolved. Um, you know, if I were to look at uh, a retail company, for example, ten years ago, twenty years ago, a Sears, a Walmart, to anybody, their thinking of like I'm going to give away some of the secrets of what we do, you know, would have been unthinkable. Um, one of the things that Lori pointed me out to was, you know would you guys like to dive into all these sort of open source projects and open source contributions that, that guilt's made into various communities? And like, I have to, like, I, I'm, that concept is, is kind of interesting to me because I have to imagine to some extent, um, like you said, it's part of the culture. People are writing code. They want to, they want to sort of highlight what they're doing. I have to imagine part of it is people are attracted to that type of culture, which says, Hey, I can go see what they're doing. Like you said, they're going to learn Scala. They're going to learn new stuff. How much of that is a is a cultural thing? How much of that is, you know, um, just sort of the economics of trying to scale stuff and saying, hey, the community can help me as much, you know, probably more than it is hiring people. Like, how, how does that how does that mindset work? How does that that thinking work these days, especially on the web, because it is becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah. So I, I think it is essentially a cultural thing. Um, and it, you know, it basically we have a tradition of really asking why things are the way they are. And a lot of us have worked at places where they wouldn't dream of giving away any code. And, and, 
very often people consume open source code and they don't contribute back. Um, and yet, like, you know, the web as we know it simply would not exist without a rich open source culture. Right. And, and so we feel we want to participate. We consume a lot. Um, we haven't contributed back as much as I would like. Um, and that's really become a priority this year. And we've open sourced a lot of stuff already in 2014. I think on the economic side, I think it's, I think we all have kind of an intuition that it's a good idea. We have an intuition that it does help us with hiring. Um, it's great for people to be able to, to actually see what we're doing before they come. And we, th- we think that we really want to attract people who would like to contribute to open source. Yeah. Having said that, some of our best people haven't contributed to open source ever. And so I don't, it's not necessarily a strong filter. And obviously, you know, there's some, you know, will one of our competitors take some of our secrets and use us, uh, use them to compete. Uh, you know, I guess it's possible, but ultimately I think, you know, the, the nature of the business is so complex and we're competing on, on so many levels that really I think the virtue and benefit of sharing is, is much greater than the risk. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're literally doing transactions at the second sub sub second level, the, the complexity of making that happen is, um, it's going to be hard to steal, I guess, if you will, or even borrow, if you will, how, how much, is the thinking when somebody starts a project, they're they're creating a microservice, they're starting a project. Are they thinking about open source first, or is it sort of evolve as you as you learn it, and you feel confident in putting it out there, or is it just it depends on the project? So yeah, I think until the very recent past, we weren't thinking about open source first. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have an annual architecture summit. Um, we have our entire tech team come and we sort of talk about uh, what we're thinking, what we're doing, what we think is important for the next year. And uh, we've, we've really kind of held hands and decided that open source is important to us. And so now all the new stuff that we're doing, we are kind of thinking about open source first. Um, we're, you know, we're not, we haven't been using GitHub day to day. We've been using an internal Garrett uh, server, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we're used to. Uh, it, has a, it has a different review workflow than GitHub, but more of our stuff is is now starting on GitHub and kind of default going open source. Um, and I think it also ties into ha- you know, one of the things that sort of happened is it, you know, it's like all all when you're building systems, things tend naturally to become monolithic, and almost everything that we can look at at Guild. At some point, we've had to make a decision to break apart something that was naturally becoming monolithic and. Um, we're, we're in the position at the moment where our entire system starts to feel monolithic and, and their internal dependencies, uh, kind of a deployment time that m- makes certain things hard. And so we're, we're really kind of focusing on greater isolation between our applications. Um, and one way to sort of jumpstart that is to think about any new thing that we build. Imagine that it was a software as a service, um, so we might put it in a separate EC2 sub-account and, and we spend a lot of time kind of thinking about what should the API be and, and reviewing it a lot. And, and we're actually trying to do uh, like a schema-first uh, approach to developing REST APIs where we, we really do create the API that we want and get it reviewed and thought about before we actually write any code. Okay. Uh, and then, the, and, you know, Whereas historically, a lot of things that we were doing were kind of more RPC-based than REST-based. We, we've really shifted to heavy emphasis on REST. Um, and REST and HTTP and, and JSON is, is you know, the lingua franca of the Internet. And building systems that work well at that level really gives you 
many more deployment options. You can host things, you know, in different cloud providers if you need to, um, and and sort of limits decoupling or limits coupling that in the past uh, was looking like it was becoming a problem for us. Gotcha, gotcha. Now you were talking about kind of the annual, you know, developers conference annual event that you guys hold. You know, we were talking earlier. You've got a big presence in New York, New York City, and then uh, you know probably a third of that presence in Dublin. How much do you see people from outside sort of the, the web industry coming? You know, do, do you see the banking industry? Do you see other what might be considered more kind of traditional industries showing up? And, and if you do, like, do, do people from outside of kind of the web industry grasp how you guys think about things, how you organize your teams? Um, I mean, do you see much of that interaction? Well, so, you know, we, we host a, a lot of, kind of free trainings in both New York and Dublin and invite the public to come, and we get people from a lot of different industries. And uh, it is a pretty interesting recruiting channel for us, and we do see people coming in um, from other industries. I think, you know, Gilt is more than just a, a web company. We do a lot of data, and, and so there's kind of a broad appeal to different sectors in tech. Yeah. Um, but I think whether you come from the web world or not, starting a Gilt uh, – for a lot of people, definitely me, is a bewildering experience because we just do things differently than most other places. Um, there's a lot to learn when when you come here, um, and just a di- like a different approach and a kind of openness that's that's certainly, in my experience, extremely uncommon. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I have to imagine there's a certain uneasiness with what probably looks like chaos, and then once you figure it out, you're kind of like, I can't imagine doing it any other way, but from the outside, it probably looks very, very unusual. Um, yeah, it's like being thrown into the middle of a symphony before you really caught on that they're actually, everyone's playing uh, the same tune or something. Right, right. Now, I, I'd be remiss just because of sort of the audience that we have. I mean, how much, um, you know, guilt has grown up, it's scaled over time, it's it's evolved over time. How much... Uh, of, of what you guys do is, is, is run sort of in-house? How much of it do you use public cloud providers? You know, how do you deal with that 12 noon scale out of stuff? What, what's the, what is some of the underlying kind of plumbing and all, or, or, you know, who you partner with to make that happen without giving away all the secrets? Uh, yeah. So we, we, uh, we primarily use a managed hosting provider, okay. um, that we've, uh, partnered with for a long time. Um, we've actually managed noon scale on bare metal, um, with essentially no elasticity for a long time. Um, we've looked at EC2 from time to time and, uh, what we, what we have found in the past was that the performance really, uh, was not the same as what we could get on bare metal. Um, as we've grown and as the system has grown, the importance of having elasticity and the importance of, uh, basically not kind of linearly growing our infrastructure operation with the size of the system has become important and disaster recovery is harder when you have to do it all yourself. And, uh, so nowadays we're, we're looking seriously at EC2. Um, and what we found actually is the performance is, is actually better than what we're seeing, uh, on bare metal in a lot of cases. Um, which is pretty amazing. You know, SSD has made a huge difference. Um, and I think the other thing is we've grown uh, in our managed hosting situation, we get a lot of interference from uh, kind of lack of isolation between apps that run in our data center. 
um, since they're all busy at the same time. Yeah. And by spreading across uh, a cloud provider, a lot of that gets kind of averaged out, and and we see better performance because of that. Okay. So we're we're kind of uh, we're at a we're essentially at a a critical point as we figure out uh, how to make the transition into the cloud, and that that's kind of underway at the moment. Uh, it's actually it's been amazing. It's uh, it, like how we work with the cloud has has completely tapped into how we think about organizing teams, and and it actually gives teams a lot more autonomy to deploy things the way they like, um, using the tools that they like, and by fixing on kind of HTTP and JSON uh, and REST as the APIs, it, that isolation is not just physical, but it it, it you know, separates business units and teams and ends up letting us move a lot faster. Gotcha. And do, do you tend to, so I mean, you sort of, you know, early on we were talking about where you'd have bottlenecks in, in code and then, you know, you were just talking about sort of like, hey, as we move to SSDs and so forth. Do you, do you tend to sort of find that the bottlenecks move in parallel so you have, um, you know, traffic, sort of software-based bottlenecks and hardware-based bottlenecks? Or do, they, do you kind of, you fix one, uh, it moves to the infrastructure. You've got to have the infrastructure team. Like, how how do how have you been sort of managing that? Because I have to imagine, you know, like you talked about, huge amount of caching, huge amount of you know local RAM and SSD, and then you know it may become you know do we do we put content in CDNs or like how do, how does the team sort of find where the bottlenecks are, manage around those, and and keep the architecture from being insane? Well, I think you know the the JVM is amazing and. Uh... And we don't have very many software bottlenecks, uh, very, very rarely. Really, the biggest bottleneck that we run into again and again is kind of the tension between reading and writing to databases. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, with Lambda architecture, um, which is kind of a, a way to combine kind of overnight batch processes with real-time data and, and pre-computing the answers to questions and putting them in KV stores. And uh, that there isn't really yet a great solution to that um, that's fully open source at least, and so that's kind of one of the things that we're looking at. And just basically, all of the different database database technologies that you could use for this incredibly fast KV store, there are different trade offs. There's no real perfect solution, and and very very often it really comes down to this trade off around availability and how fast can you write when you still need to be reading really fast. Gotcha. That's a, a recurring theme again and again for us. Yeah, and, I, and I'm hearing that more and more with people who, um, yeah, they, they, they've got to respond to sort of the, the immediate request. They want to dump it into, you know, sort of a huge data store, a huge data lake, be able to do real-time analytics on top of that and then sort of feed that response back into the customer experience or uh, the, the update that you're, you're providing. So, is that now? Is that something? Just that whole dynamic, that sort of like you said, data side of things. Is that something that you're increasingly, you know, trying to trying to find skills around? I mean, that, that's a that's a hard set of data science skills to find people for. What's what's that world look like? Because um, obviously, that's a huge part of your business to be able to to drive a better experience and better feedback to your product managers and so forth. Yeah. So we we've. Uh... We've actually hired a number of people this year, kind of with different skills in this basic space. We have, you know, kind of at one end we have uh, somewhat traditional data warehouse team, uh, 
that's doing pretty amazing work uh, for the business. Um, and then more and more, you know, we have solved part of, and there's still a lot more to solve around kind of the uh, available on the front end real time data side. And then all of the computation, uh, essentially, you know, very abstractly pre-computing the answers to lots of questions like what product does this or what sale does this user really want to see? And, we, you know, we need to know that now. Um, and it's nice if that computation can happen very quickly uh, if they're new to the site. Um, so we, we have hired and we're continuing to hire people, you know, with, with a range of skills in machine learning and Hadoop. Um, we're really interested in Spark uh, and, you know, there's kind of classic personalization algorithms, and we're also doing some research in that area. Interesting. And so a lot of that is, like you said, it's I, I'm, I'm on the site, I'm, I'm clicking here or I'm somewhere, and you've, you've kind of figured out, you know, what are the next 10 or 20 moves that I might make, and you, and you have things kind of pre-understood or pre-answered so that when I do take that action, there's, there's things that are going to happen. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. We're certainly trying to do that, um, but there's also kind of like statistically statistical aggregate sorts of functions, like trying to understand, you know, what set of sales uh, do we want kind of above the top fold, and uh, I there's also you know when people come to go- from Google having done a search, uh, how can we create an experience that that kind of makes sense to them? The the flash sales model is not completely familiar to everyone. Um, so when people show up for the first time, it's really important that we kind of understand what brought them there and then use the data that we have to tie together an experience that makes sense for them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, listen, let me sort of ask one last question because I want to be respectful of your time and, uh, it's getting towards the end of the day, uh, in, in Dublin. Um, you, you know, you talked about new people coming on board. Um, you know, we have a ton of people that are always looking to learn new things. What's, you know, day one for somebody new at Gilt, what's the, you know, the three or four things you go, Hey, go, go sort of learn this, go explore these areas. Like where are you seeing people, uh, curious? What are you trying to teach people? Uh, what are good areas for people to be kind of spending your time learning these days? Yeah, certainly, uh, anybody who comes in who doesn't already know Scala is encouraged, uh, usually to read the book Scala for the impatient. Um, I think understanding we've built our own continuous delivery pipeline and sort of understanding how we build apps and services and uh, how to get them deployed uh, is key. We are not yet to the point, but very much wish to be that everyone who comes in deploys something to production on their first day. Um, it's really easy to do guilt. Um, then kind of, really, you know, what, what's most important first kind of depends on what part of guilt you land in. Sure. Uh, and some people like to jump right into the code and fix tickets uh, and work on small features. Um, for other roles, sometimes we actually spend weeks uh, doing kind of an introduction to the broad architectural principles um, before they really dive in uh, to some of the more back-end stuff. So it, it actually really varies a lot. It's kind of we it, it varies by team. Yeah, interesting. Very very interesting. Well, listen, um, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been this has been fascinating. I'd love to. Um, I, <laughs> we, we get interesting guests. We always kind of want to consume their time. I'd love to have you back on at some point to talk about what you kind of hinted at, which is like how you organize both from a technology perspective through the business unit and so forth. But I want to kind of be respectful of time and so forth. So thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Thanks, Brian. It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, for anybody that wants to kind of follow, you know, the kind of stuff that you're working on or what the guilt team's working on, whether it's 
out at DockerCon next week or anywhere? Like, what, what are the good places people can follow um, your team and yourself on uh, on Twitter and on the internet? Yeah, so tech.guilt.com is our tech blog, and it's really active, and uh, that's probably the best place to go. Um, Guilt Tech on Twitter and also on Facebook uh, tend to mirror that feed. And, uh, yeah, please, if you're interested, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, very cool. Well, guys, thank you so much uh, for this week, folks. As always, if you like the show, tell a friend or uh, like us on iTunes. Uh, Aaron will be back next week. So for myself and for Eric and uh, for everybody out there, thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend.